always loved the parable that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. So much incredible kindness and generosity. But let me ask you, did you ever pass up an opportunity to extend a helping hand to someone, justifying by any number of, uh, well, I would say self-serving excuses? None of you would do that, of course. But I still remember one time when I was uh, driving up 112 and noticed a man standing at a bus stop on the right with a lot of packages. It wasn't until I'd passed him that I realized I knew him, someone who sometimes came to church who had a hard life. Um, certainly didn't, he didn't drive, he couldn't have afforded a taxi or an Uber. So my first thought was I should give him a ride. But since I'd already passed him, and pulling over on 112 and then backing up was not even feasible, especially the way I back up. So I said, well, I'll have to go around the block and come back up on 112. And I said, ugh, do I really want to do that? I really have to get home. I have things to do. So to make a sad story short, I just continued on my way. And obviously, I still feel guilty to this day. Because here was an opportunity to show a little kindness, a small mercy to someone who probably needed it, but I wasn't willing to pay the cost of mercy and interrupt my day's agenda. How often, I wonder, do we humans, no matter how well-meaning, ignore those opportunities in daily life when we can act with loving kindness to someone in need? Which makes the story of the Good Samaritan all that more intriguing. To better understand the meaning of the story and why did Jesus pick the Samaritan to be the hero, I guess you could say, we need to understand the context. Samaritans came from the same ethno-religious grouping as the Hebrews or Jews. In fact, the original city of Samaria was founded by Omri, who was the sixth king of Israel. When he bought the hill of Samaria, which I believe means mountain of watchfulness, to build himself a royal palace. In time, the name spread to the surrounding areas and became associated with the tribal territories of Ephraim and Manassas, two sons of Joseph, who of course was the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. So Jews and Samaritans had a kinship, a common background. But by the time of Jesus, there was nothing but hostility and animosity between the two groups of people. There were many reasons. For one, over time, while the Hebrews of Judea built the temple at Jerusalem, the Samaritans continued to worship at altars in the high places, on mountaintops and hilltops. In addition, the Samaritans had intermarried with non-Jewish people, a behavior which Ezra, who I never really liked, but Ezra, after the return of many Jews from captivity around, I don't know, 538 B.C., forbade that practice, and he expelled all the non-Jewish wives and children from Jerusalem. So Samaritans were considered not really Jewish. They were considered to be half-breeds and idol worshippers. Very negative image. Jews would often bypass Samaria when traveling from between Galilee and Judea. So looking back at the story that Brenda read, 
Um, a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho was set upon by robbers and beaten horribly and left for dead at the side of the road. And along came a priest and a Levite, both of them officials of the temple. We might have expected them to immediately stop and give some kind of help to the injured man. But they didn't, did they? They crossed to the other side of the road and continued on their path. Were they selfish and cruel? Were they arrogant? Were they just didn't care enough to stop? Well, maybe. Or were they perhaps fundamentally decent men who believed that scrupulously following the rules, the doctrine and dogma of their faith was more critical and important to God than showing compassion to another human being? Probably. Perhaps they thought that if I help this man, I will get his blood on my hands and I will not be able to fulfill my duties because I must be purified, which took a period of days. Or maybe they said to themselves that very comforting rationalization that perhaps some of us have used, somebody else will come along and help. And then here came the Samaritan. He was traveling also from Jerusalem, which is about... 2,500 feet above sea level, to Jericho, which is about 820 feet below sea level. So it's quite a drop there. Um, It's only 18 miles, but I suspect if you're riding on the back of a donkey and uh, also going way down, it was probably not that comfortable. And also, the fact that the road was notorious for being a hotbed of thieves and criminals was not exactly a welcoming thing. Suppose when the Samaritan came upon the Samaritan came upon the badly injured man, he thought, oh, "You got to be kidding! Good grief! I've got to get to Jericho as soon as possible. Not to mention how tired I am. If I stop, I'll be delayed. Who knows how long? Oh, besides, maybe the thieves are still nearby and they're a real danger to me. Or maybe he could have thought." Why should I, a Samaritan, help this Hebrew when our people are always at odds? When the Jews treat Samaritans with contempt and think we are less than they are? Hmm. If the situation were reversed, would he help me? Or maybe he too could have used the comforting excuse, somebody else will be along shortly and they'll help. But he didn't use any of these excuses, did he? The Bible says he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. I'm assuming the wine probably cleansed the wounds and the oil soothed them. Then he put him on his own donkey and took him to the nearest inn where he continued to care for them. And it didn't end there, did it? He paid the landlord of the inn to continue to care for the injured man until he himself could return from Jericho. So the Samaritan acted with enormous generosity of spirit, of time, and of money. But again, why did Jesus tell this parable? And why did he choose the Samaritan to be the central figure? By the way, this is not the only time that Jesus uh, highlighted positive interactions with Samaritans. In John 4, 7, he talked about the Samaritan woman at the well whom he asked for a cup of water and then 
spoke to her about the living water. Or in Luke 17, 16, when he healed a Samaritan leper. And there are other passages like that in Luke and John. Well, okay, why? What was Jesus' message? What was he trying to convey? As with most of Jesus' teachings, there are many levels. For one, by choosing the despised outsider, the person who didn't belong, who was the other, by choosing that one to be the one who responded with kindness and compassion, who acted mercifully without hesitation, without counting the course beforehand, he was rejecting the commonly accepted norms and behaviors and biases that separated the Jews and Samaritans from each other. He was saying that differences like where you come from, your religious traditions and practices, who you marry, are not important enough to justify withholding mercy to impede loving one another. Nor, he was pointing out, is rigidly adhering to religious dogma and legalisms more important than loving one another. The priest and the Levite didn't understand that. They had surrendered themselves to rigidly following the rules, feeling that by doing so, they were honoring God, devoting themselves to God's services. Let's look back at the, at the beginning of the, the uh, scripture reading when the lawyer, testing Jesus, asked what must be done to inherit eternal life, and Jesus said, well, you tell me. And of course, he responded correctly with the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And secondly, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, Jesus said, you're right. But of course, being a lawyer, a man had to test Jesus, and he said, well, okay, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus told the story we know. And at the end of the story, the man answered his own question, who is my neighbor, by saying, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, right, now you go and do likewise. So I believe on one level, Jesus was saying that loving God with all our being has to manifest itself in how we treat one another. When we separate ourselves into tribal groupings, excluding those who don't fit, whether based on ethnicity, religion, gender, economic standard, status, country of origin, whatever, we have so many ways of separating ourselves from one another, we make it difficult for the fullness of God's ever-present love to enter into our hearts, minds, and spirits. And I think that brings us to another level of meaning inherit in this scripture. I believe that Jesus was opening a window into the very nature of God. I believe Jesus was saying that God's love is overflowing and unbelievably generous. And that mercy is an attribute of God. But it's one that human beings, even with all our flaws and faults, can and should emulate in our daily lives. The theologian William Barclay defined divine love as unconquerable benevolence. Unconquerable benevolence. Nothing can diminish God's love for us. Amen. 
As the theologian Paul Tillich said, the wonderful thing is that we are accepted. We are accepted by that which is greater than ourselves, and that is God. But we have a responsibility to respond to God's love in ways that can keep us in harmony. Oh, sorry. I missed a note on the side. Also, remember the the parable of the prodigal son? What happened there when the son was, I guess we call him a loser? He did all the wrong things. He drank. He probably took drugs. He gambled his money. He was a mess. And yet when he returned to his father, the father welcomed him with open arms. And I think that is another example of how God is always willing to welcome us into his loving arms. So, but we have a responsibility to respond to God's love in ways that keep us in harmony with God and with one another. As the prophet Micah said, for what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? I think that's a guideline we can carry in our hearts every day to guide us and inform our actions. Every day, the chance to act mercifully presents itself, sometimes in a simple action like smiling at a stranger or taking the time to truly listen to someone, which is a great gift of love. Sometimes showing mercy might require a larger sacrifice of time, even money. And sometimes the person receiving the kindness can be difficult or different, but no less deserving in God's eyes. I believe God allows these mercy moments to present themselves in our lives, not as tests, but as opportunities to deepen our relationship with each other and with God. But there is a cost to behaving mercifully that can sometimes be inconvenient and throw us out of our comfort zones. Mercy cannot be compartmentalized or scheduled. We cannot um, say, okay, I'm going to be merciful on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Rest of the time, I'm just going to take care of myself. doesn't work that way. The cost of mercy involves laying aside our differences and recognizing and cherishing our commonalities. The cost of mercy involves putting the needs of another ahead of our own. And the cost of mercy involves loving and accepting others as we are loved and accepted by God. When God calls you to act with loving kindness, sisters and brothers, will you be the Good Samaritan? Amen. Amen.